Today on the podcast, we're talking about FEMA. It's come a long way since the failures of Hurricane Katrina, but it's also got a lot more on its plate these days. Is it too much? Let's find out. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. A government report from 1993 estimated that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, could expect to respond to around one to two major emergency disaster declarations per year. So far this year, which I should remind you is only halfway through, we've had almost three dozen disaster declarations, with the most recent one coming just this morning after widespread flooding in Vermont. Has FEMA's funding and manpower kept up with this explosive increase, a big portion of which can be attributed to climate change? As you'll hear in a bit, no, not really. Bloomberg government's Ellen Gilmer and Kelly Lunny are out with a story looking at a lot of the problems that FEMA faces at the moment and how or whether they can be solved. One of those problems is that, as it turns out, preparing for disasters by making communities more resilient to a changing climate isn't actually something that people really want to do. But first, I start off by asking Ellen to explain to me why FEMA was created in the first place. So FEMA was created in 1979. Jimmy Carter wanted to streamline both disaster assistance, but also FEMA was created as a civil defense agency. It was during the Cold War and the impacts of any type of major disaster, whether it's weather related or not, um, were at the forefront of everybody's minds when they were establishing FEMA. So this was a situation where, you know, we were worried that there could be a disaster and that would leave us more vulnerable to the Soviets. Not just that, but that a Soviet-caused disaster would need a coordinated response on the ground to, for recovery. I see. Um, and tell me about where we're at now. What are all the things that is in, are in FEMA's portfolio? What are the types of disasters that they handle in 2023? So almost immediately after FEMA was established, Congress started adding things to its plate, which in some ways makes sense because it's an emergency management agency. So all types of emergencies. Uh, first, they started adding preparing for earthquakes to FEMA's portfolio, ensuring dam safety, things like that, which aren't aren't really a stretch. And then it's just continued a natural progression. These days, you see FEMA helping uh, coordinate on anything from an increase of unaccompanied migrant children at the border to distributing COVID-19 vaccines. And I should uh, point out here that one of the people who they administered the COVID-19 vaccine to was myself. I got my first COVID shot at a FEMA trailer at the Greenbelt Metro here in the Washington, D.C. area. So I know exactly what that's all about. Well, that's very cool. Yeah, FEMA has a lot of interface with like the public. Um, a lot of people have like close interactions with that agency. Was it a gradual change where FEMA's mission just kind of kept getting larger and larger every year? Or was there a, a pivot point where you can point to this this event and say, this is where FEMA you know, really blew up its scope. There was a lot of gradual adding of responsibilities to FEMA's plate, but there were also some big inflection points. And Kelly, you did some reporting on that. What were some of those inflection points? Yes, I think that the mission of FEMA has really evolved to meet the evolution of disaster in this country, um, particularly natural disasters, as extreme weather has become more of an issue. Um, and we've had more extreme weather more frequently. 
FEMA has stepped into that void. Um, I think the watershed event really was Hurricane Katrina in 2005. That was when we really saw a rethinking of what FEMA's role is and what they should be doing. And they really started to take on more of uh, before, during, after response, particularly after with recovery, uh, because Katrina, I mean, in some instances, that recovery is is still happening today, almost 20 years later. Yeah, I, I was thinking about for this, you know, before we started recording, I was thinking about when was the first time I even heard of FEMA existing? And I think it was either shortly before or during Hurricane Katrina. And if you didn't know what FEMA was before then, you definitely knew afterward. Um, but a lot of people are saying now that the agency is just unsustainable. It's gotten so big. It has so many responsibilities. Can you tell me about who these people are who are making this criticism and about, you know, what the, the you know, make the case as to what they're arguing for? Well, I think that um, a lot of observers and these are people in government, whether it's the government accountability office or people on the Hill or people in emergency management, I think that they're worried that the growing set of responsibilities for FEMA, not necessarily that the, the people can't handle it, but just that they don't necessarily have the resources and the support that they always need, um, particularly the workforce, which has grown um, a fair amount since 1979, about 8,000 when it was created to about 20,000 or so now. but. You know, their mission is so broad. It's also very taxing physically, emotionally, um, and the workforce can get burnt out, as I think most people understand. So it's not so much that people think FEMA can't do the job. I think they just they they want to make sure that FEMA has the resources that it needs to do it as well as 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 well as it can. Ellen, what what if what kind of reporting have you done about whether FEMA is just too big? There's this ethos in emergency management of all hazards. So you might hear like some lawmakers say like, oh, what's FEMA doing down at the border? What's FEMA doing with XYZ? But the whole point of emergency management, according to emergency managers, is to deal with all hazards and to help the infrastructure that exists, like the other agencies that exist at the federal, state, and local level, um, figure out how to deal. So some people might say there's mission creep, but like emergency management folks, for the most part, would say, this is all fair game. So let's get into some of the solutions that you guys outline in your story. And one of them is mitigation. And the idea there would be that, you know, we take mitigating factors ahead of a disaster. So when a disaster hits, it's not as bad. Uh, but as it turns out, this is pretty politically unpopular. Uh, get into that and tell me about why mitigation really isn't a, a good, you know, a good solution. Well, I think everyone in this field agrees that there needs to be mitigation um, and, and more resilience and that FEMA has a role to play there. Uh, you know, during the Trump administration, they created the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program within FEMA. So they recognize this is an issue. This is a this is a priority for us that can range from grants, loans to communities to help them prepare, whether it's beachfront nourishment projects or you know, trying to help people understand the risks of living near water. It's a very tricky situation, though, because you don't want to be in the position, and certainly the government doesn't want to be in this position, of telling people where they can and cannot live. And so there's that part of it, which makes it politically unpalatable. But the opposite side of that coin is, how much do people pay 
to be in a place that they want to live in, but which is is dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the the key to, to mitigation is you know sure you can reinforce structures and you can reinforce homes, but ultimately, you know, the key is having people not live in places that are disaster prone. And that's not, I think it sounds like based on your reporting, it's not really a message that people want to hear. No, because it makes it more expensive for everybody. And it's obviously dangerous. Um, People's lives are at risk, but it becomes more expensive for the government. It becomes more expensive for private insurance companies who do provide flood insurance, for example. And And it becomes more expensive for homeowners and renters who have to pay to subsidize the decision to live in these places. Well, and let's specifically get into flood insurance because that's something that you guys address in your story really well. Uh, The National Flood Insurance Program is run out of FEMA. Uh, And it's been a, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here by saying it's been a financial mess uh, for a long time. There have been reforms uh, to that program, and it sounds like those haven't really gone over very well. Uh, Tell me what's going on with that specifically. Yes, that's right. The program is about $20 billion, with a B, dollars in debt right now, which is enormous. Um, Congress has forgiven its debt previously. Essentially, the program cannot keep up with the pace of disasters and the expense of disasters because it's not, it's not equipped to properly reflect actual disaster risk or the rates that people need to pay to live in these places. In other words, like people, they haven't raised the rates as much as they probably should because people don't want to have to pay a lot of money for flood insurance. Yeah, we're talking about subsidized insurance here, but the question is how subsidized? And it sounds like the answer that, uh, you know, congressmen on Capitol Hill and governors of flood prone states want to hear is very, very subsidized, extremely subsidized. And it sounds like the you know the issue is that FEMA just can't keep up financially with uh, subsidizing all those policies. Yes, that's right. Um, I think you know they've tried. Congress has tried over the years to introduce legislation. In fact, they passed a bill that was later um, part of it was repealed to raise rates to help the program become more solvent because there was a lot of pushback from constituents. Uh, FEMA rolled out in 2021 a new program called Risk Rating 2.0, which essentially um, tries to make flood insurance more accurate in terms of places that can flood um, and try to marry that with a price point that makes sense. But again, a lot of homeowners saw spikes, um, really significant spikes in what they were paying on an annual basis. And there has been backlash from that. Um, And in Congress, both sides, Democrats and Republicans are looking to try to reform that program to make it more politically palatable. Ellen, I want to turn to you and now talk about another solution that you brought up in your story, which is making FEMA independent. Uh, one of the things that people said and that you talked to is that, you know, it's a part of DHS and that that kind of hampers it by, you know, adding another layer of bureaucracy. And what we need to do is go back to the way it was pre 9-11 and have a, you know, an independent agency reporting directly to the president. Would that solve uh, the agency's problems? And um, if not, People have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I mean, during a disaster, FEMA today, even though it's part of DHS, during a disaster, FEMA does have a direct line to the president. So that's always clear. But when it's not a 
dealing with a disaster, when it's just dealing with FEMA's everyday operations, it is subject to all the bureaucracy and all the politics of being part of this behemoth. And you won't find a single component within DHS that doesn't have like a group of folks saying we would be better if we were independent. Uh, obviously, it's hard to be part of a big organization. And there are ways that it can disadvantage FEMA by just like adding hoops to jump through that you get with any sort of big administrative process. Um, there are people will argue there are some advantages too to being in DHS. It's easier in some cases to coordinate with other components they need to coordinate with. Anytime you talk about reorganizing government, it's hugely disruptive. So that's the biggest argument against taking FEMA out of DHS is that like even if it might be better on its own, how much disruption would it cause to put it there? And it would take like 10 years to get that all ironed out. And is it worth it? And some people say yes, like that's absolutely worth the disruption because it would be better. And some people are really cautious about it. All right. Finally, I want to have both of you guys weigh in. And Kelly, let's start with you. Um, do you see this getting worse before it gets better? And the reason why I ask is because it seems like we have really difficult problems to solve here. You know, we have low morale. Uh, we have, you know, high burnout rates. We have mitigation policies that aren't really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then we also have, you know, these bureaucratic issues. Um, do you think that we almost need another situation like Katrina where everything just went wrong for a lot of these problems to be fixed holistically? I think that in many instances, not just with emergency management, but across the board, government tends to govern by crises, the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, so I think, unfortunately, a lot of times when change is affected, it is through a crisis like Katrina or Superstorm Sandy. Those um, two events, very tragic, very expensive, ultimately yielded reforms in statute that helped FEMA do its job better. I think most people would agree with that. Um, I think that there are people in and out of government who are looking proactively at how to get ahead of disaster, how to get ahead of putting the right type of resources and enough personnel toward disaster. Um, it's It takes a lot of imagination, though, in some instances to to predict what the next disaster will be. I mean, there's a lot we, we do know. But, you know, I think that um, unfortunately, it probably will take something that goes wrong before we see any sort of real substantive reform or movement. I mean, you know, just take risk rating 2.0 as an example. They rolled that out. People saw spikes in their insurance rates. They were mad about it. There was a backlash. And so now people are interested in reforming the program. So I think a lot of times government response is reactive, unfortunately. Ellen, I'll give you the last word. What do you think? Do you think we need, um, you know, another crisis or do you is there a reason for optimism that will proactively solve these problems before something really bad happens? There's reason for optimism that lawmakers and, and administration officials will make incremental improvements to the status quo. But I, I agree that it would take something huge to really shake loose a bigger change and overhaul to the process, the agency, whatever is broken. And, um, Another hurdle to that and a reason it takes something big to force action is that in Congress, the jurisdiction over FEMA is like all of DHS. It's very disjointed and it takes all of these people in different committees working together and agreeing to share or cede power 
And that doesn't happen very often on the Hill. I hadn't thought about that. The, yeah, there's there's not one FEMA committee. It's You'd have to have like multiple different committees in the House and the Senate bringing them all together. Just look at, you know, 9-11. That was the event that forced the creation of a, of a whole new department. Departments in the government are not created every single day. But that was such a, you know, tragedy on such an enormous global scale that the response was to create this huge new department that focused on homeland security. So again, you know, that's an example of something really terrible happened. And this was the response. That was Kelly Lunny and Ellen Gilmer with Bloomberg Government speaking to me about the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.